Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And then if you did not receive an outline uh, for, this, for the book of Matthew when you walked in this morning, if you want to slip up your hands, we have uh, ushers that can make those available. There's some in the overflow room as well there, Jack, that uh, may need some. All right, Matthew chapter 1. I'm just going to read verse 1, and then we'll uh, begin begin in, in prayer together. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, our desire is that uh, we would be better equipped to know you and know um, what the truth says um, so we might live lives that please you as we have already sung this morning. Um, Our desire is not to just accumulate knowledge but um, to develop and increase uh, affection for you. And so, Lord, would you help us and equip us this morning as we, as we turned our attention to the Scriptures. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're introducing uh, the book of Matthew and are beginning our, uh, what will be a sermon series in the book of Matthew. And this particular, uh, I don't even know if I can call it a sermon, uh, but this particular um, talk or introduction uh, will be different than um, what we typically do in, uh, in, our, in our study of, uh, study of Scripture. We're going to look at a number of passages throughout the book of Matthew, but um, it's going to be largely an, an introduction this morning. So to make it more interesting, um, I, I have PowerPoint this morning, all right? So my accusation for PowerPoint, that's the wrong direction. Uh, my accusation of PowerPoint is that it, it tries to make you seem like you have more to say than you really do. Uh, so I don't like to use PowerPoint at all, but we're going to break the mold this morning and, uh, and use PowerPoint as we introduce the book of Matthew. And then uh, in your hands, you have uh, an outline of the book of Matthew. So last week, I encourage you to try to read through the book of Matthew in uh, one setting or, one, or maybe uh, just like maybe one day or something like that. Did anybody have the opportunity to do that? All right, well, and to be fair, okay, two, two people, all right, so, okay, so I did encourage you to try to do it within the next two weeks, all right, so seven days are gone, and you've got seven more. That outline in your hand, we'll go through that in a couple minutes, but that outline in your hand will help you sort of know the flow of the book of Matthew, how it's organized, and help understand the purpose of the book of Matthew, because the, the early church would have read Matthew sort of in, in that sense all at, all at one time as you would a book, uh, not just dropping in by one chapter or another. So let's begin our study this morning, and I'm excited to begin this book of Matthew uh, with you. I have preached uh, portions 
of the Gospels, but this is the first time that I've walked through a Gospel uh, verse by verse here uh, in our church. Uh, I think the, um, the, the task is both exciting and I'm also a little bit apprehensive uh, as we walk into this book. I'm excited uh, because this book of Matthew contains uh, a tremendous amount of rich material. Right? So if you think about just the first three chapters, um, you have the, the, or the first two chapters, the birth narratives uh, of, uh, of Christ. Uh, you're probably familiar with the, the Sermon on the Mount and all the rich content that's contained within it. Uh, there are the kingdom parables of chapter 13 that absolutely fascinate me. Uh, and so those are definitely interesting. One intimidating section of the book is, is the Olivet Discourse as Jesus uh, is preparing his disciples for his return. And then we've got the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, in this book as well. Just to name a few things of the, of the exciting content that's found in here. I'm probably most excited, though, about the close focus we'll, we'll spend looking at Jesus. Who he is, what he taught his death, his resurrection, and his, his coming return. And my prayer is that our hearts would increase in love for Christ as we sort of walk page by page uh, through this book of Matthew. There's uh, one man I know that tells a story of he, he came to faith in Christ simply by reading the Gospels and being exposed to Jesus. At the same time, I said I'm apprehensive in preaching this particular book because it's a long book, all right? 28 chapters, but it's not just 28 chapters. It's 28 chapters that are packed full of subject matter. And so I'm not sure how long this will take or if we'll take a, a break moving through, um, but it will take some work to get through, uh, through this book and to do so, try to keep up at a, at a good pace. But those two aspects, both its, its length and its, its, its content, uh, have been challenging as I think about this. And so getting this sermon series off the ground, for me, it's felt like getting a little bit of a 747 off the ground, like we've needed a long runway uh, just in order, to, uh, just in order to, to, for me to wrap my mind around this, this book. Now, one of the strange things about the book of Matthew is the way that it begins. And we didn't read the verses, but if you were to read then verses 2 to 17, you will see that it begins with a genealogy of Abraham through to David uh, through to Jesus Christ. And I can't think of a way, a better way, to dampen your enthusiasm for a new sermon series than to start with a genealogy, all right? Although I figured out a way. Before we get to the genealogy, we're going to start with an introduction and go through the introductory details. So that may dampen your enthusiasm even more. So we're going to try to ramp up to the exciting part of uh, parts of this book as we begin this morning with, uh, with an introduction of the book. Of course, I'm joking uh, mostly uh, as, I, as I make those, those, those comments. So this week we'll begin with the introduction, and next week we'll consider, Lord willing, uh, the genealogy in the first 17 verses. So uh, bear with me this morning as we work through these details, and I hope that you find them helpful because this is going to lay the necessary foundation of what we're going to consider in the, in the time moving forward. I want to begin this morning with six questions by way of introduction. So who wrote Matthew? When was it written? To whom was it written? Why was it written? How is it structured? And what kind of book? is it. Okay, so we'll work, through those, we'll work through those questions together. So let's begin with the first one. Who wrote Matthew? Now your first 
reaction to that question might be, well, Matthew, of course, okay? But you might be surprised to know that nowhere in the book of Matthew is Matthew mentioned as the author. So unlike some of the books where the author records his name within the content of the book, say like Paul and and Peter, okay, uh, this gospel is anonymous. So I say in our, our, our notes here that the author is probably Matthew. Now, why do we say that it's probably Matthew. Well, we can't be 100% certain that Matthew wrote this gospel, but we do know that it has been the overwhelming position of the early church that Matthew is the author. So to put it this way, all of the early Greek manuscripts in existence today, they contain this heading that reads, according to Matthew. So if you take the existent manuscripts that we have of Scripture, you go back to some of the oldest ones in Matthew, you'll find that this heading, according to Matthew, is attached to them. And one of those manuscripts dates all the way back to the late 2nd or early 3rd century. So the earliest manuscript evidence attributes uh, authorship to Matthew. In addition to this, we'll see uh, next that the early church fathers attributed authorship to, to, to Matthew. So those individuals who wrote about Christianity just 100 and 200 years after Christ was on earth, they were recognizing Matthew as the author of this gospel as well. Now, within the book itself, there are some hints that Matthew is the author. One of the examples of this is Matthew uses the official term for currency, where Mark and Luke use a more unofficial term. And you remember that since Matthew was a tax collector, he would have used or been likely to use the official term for currency. And and while that's a hint that Matthew may have been the author, we recognize that it's not a slam dunk uh, that Matthew is the author. So the conclusion of most people, though, is that there's no reason to doubt what the earliest manuscripts and the earliest tradition tell us about the authorship of this book. So uh, I also want to say this, whether it was Matthew or whether it was not Matthew, it doesn't change the the content or the meaning of of this book. The next question I want to ask is, when was this book written? And there are really two ideas uh, that that help us understand the, the dating of this book. So in answering this question, first of all, we see that Matthew's gospel was written sometime after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you're like, well, yeah, of course, but let me, I'll explain a little bit more detail here in just a second. So it's written after uh, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And then next we see that Matthew's gospel was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now let's consider these two points uh, together as we, uh, as we consider when Matthew's uh, book was written. So Matthew's gospel was written sometime after the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, let me just uh, say it this way, that it was written sometime, or maybe some considerable time, after uh, Christ was on earth. And the reason we say this is because there is an expression in the book of Matthew that pops up and it reads this way, to this day. And you find this on a couple of occasions within the book of Matthew uh, and, and that help us understand when the book was written. So let me take you to two of them. First, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 27. And this was the scripture passage that we, we read, uh, but this is the earlier portion before you get to uh, what we read in our, 
in our scripture reading. So Matthew chapter 27, and begin, begin with me in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And Matthew makes this comment, verse 8, he says this, Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, what we would indicate from this passage is that Matthew has written a considerable amount of time after this incident so that he could say that even to this day the field is still called the field of blood. Now whether that has been months it seems unlikely, whether it's been a few years it may seem unlikely, but it may have even been 10 to 20 years after the fact that Matthew's writing this and looking back on this. There's another one of these phrases that appears in chapter 28 And, and, verse, uh, and verse 15. Let's figure out where I want to start reading. Start reading in, in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Okay, this is, that is, they've, uh, they've, they've, um, they've lost Jesus' body. Of course, he's, he's resurrected. And, and verse 13 says, and it said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story, okay, that Jesus had been stolen... This story had been spread among the Jews to this day. Okay, so a considerable amount of time has passed since, um, since Jesus has been crucified and raised and, and, and ascended. Okay? So that's the first aspect of this answer. When was it written? But the second aspect of this answer is that uh, this writing of Matthew happened before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And the reason we believe this is because the potter's field, referred to in the previous chapter we just read, was no longer in use after the fall of Jerusalem. So Matthew's still writing about the potter's fall being in use. So it's best to conclude, I think, that Matthew's gospel was written in A.D. 50 or A.D. 60. Okay, so long enough after Christ's ascension, but still before the, um, still before the fall of Jerusalem. Now, our next question we want to ask here as we go through this book is to whom was this letter written or this gospel written? Okay, there are many aspects of this gospel that indicate that, that Matthew was writing to primarily a Jewish audience. And that's not to say there was nothing for Gentiles in this book, but Matthew seems especially concerned to present Jesus as the Messiah to 
Jews. And there are several factors that we see in this, uh, in this book to, to indicate this. So first of all, uh, in, the, in verse 1 of, of uh, chapter 1, he presents the genealogy of Jesus and traces him back to Abraham, who was the father of the Jews. Luke, if you look at his genealogy, he does something different. He goes all the way back to Abraham. But if Matthew's audience is particularly Jewish, then he goes, I'm sorry, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, and uh, Matthew uh, goes all the way back to Abraham to show him as a, son of, uh, as a son of Abraham, a Jew. The second area where we see that the Jewish audience is, uh, is, is in focus here is Matthew doesn't seem concerned with explaining certain Jewish customs, but rather he seems to assume his readers will know what he's talking about. Okay, so two places where this is evident. I want us to compare Matthew chapter 15 with Mark chapter 7. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, if you would. Matthew chapter 15, and then we're going to compare this against, uh, against Luke, excuse me, Mark chapter 7. Okay, so Matthew chapter 15, in verse 1, we have this. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and then the story goes on. Okay, focus in on that phrase, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Matthew states that. And then he just continues on with the story. Now turn over to Mark chapter 7 and notice uh, how, this, uh, how this same story is recounted by, by Mark. Start in verse 1 of, Matthew, of Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now there's a parenthesis here in verse 8. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come out of the marketplace, they do not eat unless, unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay, so the difference here between, in this account between Matthew and Mark is Matthew, if his audience is primarily Jewish, has no need to explain these customs. Mark takes the time at a Gentile audience to explain in detail so that they understand what was taking place in, in the Jewish customs and the Jewish traditions at this time. So it's another indication that Matthew is probably writing to, to, to Jews. Next, uh, Matthew is the only one to mention that Jesus is come to the lost sheep uh, are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 15, and I'll just give one demonstration of this in Matthew chapter 15. Okay, don't grow tired of, uh, tired of turning, all right? Matthew chapter 15. And Jesus went away from there, in verse 21, I should say, reading verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman... From that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is 
severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus eventually does heal her daughter because of her faith, but Jesus makes a statement here that he has only come to the lost house, or primarily come to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. Okay? This is a, there, there will be a transition in Jesus, in Jesus' ministry as he goes through the book of Matthew, but it's at this point that Luke's the only one that records this detail, that Jesus has come with a primary intention of presenting the kingdom to, uh, to the nation of Israel. And Matthew shows the Jewish priority of Jesus' ministry. Now, lastly and most importantly, the reason that we think that this is a Jewish audience to which uh, Matthew is writing is because Matthew places a strong emphasis on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There's a phrase that's repeated uh, numerous times within the book of Matthew, and it goes something like this. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Right? So if you go even all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, you've got the birth narratives contain a couple of these. I should have written these, uh, so, so verse 22 of Matthew chapter 1, I did write these down, okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, this is where, you know, Joseph and Mary find the news of a baby, and verse 22 says, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, okay? He quotes an Old Testament passage there. He does this again in chapter 2, uh, verse 17, He says, and this was fulfilled, was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation after the babies were killed in, um, after the babies were killed in Bethlehem. Okay, so, so Matthew is concerned to, to give his Jewish audience support of Jesus coming from Old Testament passages. So just uh, one source identifies this, that Matthew has 61 Old Testament quotations. Now, to put that into comparison, Mark has 31 Old Testament quotations, Luke has 26 Old Testament quotations, and the book of John only has 16 Old Testament quotations. So Matthew's is almost double what each of the other books has. He has 61 Old Testament quotations. So clearly, Matthew is concerned to put the Old Testament before his Jewish audience and to show how it applies to Jesus. So if his audience was Jewish, this would be an important theme for him to connect to them. Now, there was also an aspect in which there is a Gentile audience, or at least Gentiles overhearing what is taking place in this, in this book. So for example, I think I have a couple listed here, I'll just move through these quickly. He traces the genealogy to Abraham. Abraham would have been the one in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So he says in, in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So he brings blessings both for Jews and for Gentiles. A second uh, place where this is, we see this is, is Matthew is the only one who writes about the, the Magi, the wise men visiting, uh, which was a non-Jewish element found in, uh, in his gospel. And then you, you'll remember this, at the end of the book, uh, it finishes not with the gospel just going to the house of Israel, but the disciples taking the message of the gospel to all nations, baptizing them 
and teaching them to observe all that has been commanded. So we might say this, that Matthew's audience is largely Jewish, uh, but it, it's not strictly Jewish, uh, but it is primarily, primarily Jewish. All right, now let's get into the, what I would think is the good stuff here, okay? Why was Matthew written? Why was Matthew written? In asking this question, it's important to remind ourselves of this. So listen very carefully. The Gospels were not intended to be mere historical biographies of Jesus. Okay, the Gospels were not intended to be mere historical biographies of Jesus. And I think sometimes we forget this, and we think that they're, they're supposed to match up chronologically and sort of record all the same details. And then when details don't match up or the chronology doesn't match up, we, we are a little confused about what's taking place. Instead, what the, what the Gospels are is they are carefully crafted accounts of Jesus and they're organized in a specific way to achieve a specific purpose or to drive home a certain point. So the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, they have very clearly stated purposes for the writing of their Gospel. Right? You remember, just to give an illustration of John 20, 31, who remembers this? It was the sparky memory verse like last week or two weeks ago, I think. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's a very clear purpose statement written there in John's Gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 and following is a very clear purpose statement. I've, I've recorded this so that you, Theophilus, might be convinced of everything about Jesus. So Luke gives a very clear purpose statement for his Gospel. But Matthew and Mark do not. There's not a clear statement as to why Matthew was written or to why Mark was written. So that means we must do the hard work of, of looking at what's said in the book, of connecting the, the themes that we find, and sort of coming to a conclusion as to what the purpose of, of Matthew is. So in studying Matthew, and I think any gospel, we should be constantly asking these two questions. Why was this detail or story or parable or this particular teaching, why was it recorded and why was it recorded in this particular place? And this will help us understand what the purpose of the book is and what's taking place in the, uh, in the various uh, sections of, of the book. Okay, so what then is the, the purpose of the book of Matthew? I'll give a short version of it here. It's to present Jesus as king. But, but I, want, I want to elaborate on this a little bit and, and maybe expand it, okay? The, the purpose is to present Jesus, and now let me elaborate, as the promised king of Israel who would fulfill all that the Old Testament scriptures predicted about him. Because right? remember, Matthew just keeps peppering his gospel with Old Testament quotes. So his goal, yes, is to present Jesus as king, but more than that, to present him as the king of Israel who would fulfill all the promises that we find in the Old Testament that were made about him. Now this seems clear from the very first verses of Matthew as, as Matthew introduces Jesus as the Christ. 
Now, we've, we've kind of grown accustomed and, and comfortable, and we'll get into this next week. We've grown comfortable and accustomed to the fact that Jesus is, is called Jesus Christ, and it, it's some sort, of, some sort of title or name that he's been given. But when Matthew introduces him, right, he introduced him as Jesus Christ or, or Jesus the Messiah or the Anointed One. In other words, the, the Old Testament uh, is, is anticipating the Anointed One, the, the Anointed Messiah that's coming, and although Matthew's gospel is not the, the first gospel written chronologically, it's placed as the first gospel because it, 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 there's this anticipation from the Old Testament, and now Matthew, the, the New Testament begins with Matthew saying, here he is, the promised and anointed king. So he calls him in, in Matthew 1.1 1, 1, uh, Christ, but he also calls him the son of David. And the son of David has... has, has kingly implications, okay, that, that he, was, he was the king that would come in the line of, of David. In fact, you'll get all the way to the triumphal entry in chapter 21, and what are the people crying out when, when Jesus comes in on a donkey? Hosanna, son of David, okay? He's the one fulfilling the promise, as we'll, as we'll see as we get into uh, to the Davidic covenant next week. Then the gospel continues to mention this idea of king and, and kingdom more than any other gospel. In chapter 2, the, the Magi come, and what do they ask? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? In, in Matthew 4, verse 3, John the Baptist opens up his message about, about Jesus, and what, did he, what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we get to the end of the book, and Jesus is having this discussion with Pilate, and and the theme is surrounding, is Jesus who they say he is? Is he the king of the Jews? And we find him at the end crucified with a sign hanging over his head saying that this is the king of the Jews. So Matthew's purpose is to present Jesus as, as king. But this needs a little bit more explanation. Okay, Remember that Matthew is writing well after some important events have occurred in and around Jerusalem. So I want you to think about this, because sometimes I think we think Matthew is, is like writing as things are going. But I want you to remember that, that this is like years later, or decades later, Matthew's looking back on all this, and he's writing with this specific purpose. Okay, so think about the things that have happened before Matthew has written. Jesus has been born, he has lived, he has carried out his ministry, he has died, he has resurrected, he has ascended. Also, Pentecost has happened, and the founding of the church has taken place. By this time, the gospel has moved to, gen to, the, to the Gentiles as well. And so a lot has happened in this 50, and, in, in 50 or 60 years since like, the birth of Christ to the time Matthew is, is writing. So now Matthew is writing to his Jewish audience, maybe as they dwell there in Jerusalem, and he's presenting Jesus as the promised king according to the Old Testament. But in so doing, he has to clarify. He has to clarify why things look the way they do today in A.D. 50 or 60 and explain why the kingdom hasn't been established by Jesus. So, for example, I mean, 
Just think about how this unfolds, right? The, the book begins by showing that Jesus is the promised king of the Old Testament. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's virgin born. He's, he's fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7. He's connected to the Micah prophecy of being born in Bethlehem. He's declared it by John the Baptist that to the, to the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at the beginning of this gospel, there's all this anticipation that Jesus is going to come and do what? Set up his kingdom. But then you get to the end of the book. And he's having this discussion with Pilate about whether he's guilty of the charge of being accused as king of the Jews. And he's saying, it's true, you've, you've said it, that's, that's who I am. But instead of establishing a kingdom, he ends up being crucified. So Matthew writes, really to, to answer the question of what happened. Or, what went wrong? Or, why do things look the way they do now? And why didn't the king establish his kingdom? Most importantly, Matthew writes to his largely Jewish audience to tell them that God's promises to Israel had not failed. That there would be a kingdom who came, a king who came, there would be a kingdom that would come, Jesus would return to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. So I like John MacArthur's overall outline of the book when he says this, that Matthew can be broken up into three sections. The king is revealed, the king is rejected, and the king is returning. So that's the purpose for which Matthew was, was written. Now, let's get into our next section here. How is Matthew structured? At this point, it will be helpful for you to have the outline in your hand so you can look at this with me. And I give you this information because, as I said earlier, this will help you read through the book of Matthew and understand what's taking place here. Okay? It'll help you read through it in sort of an orderly fashion rather than a, a random fashion, and you'll be able to understand at each point what's, what's taking place. And you can better see Matthew's purpose, I think, as the structure unfolds. Just an interesting note about Matthew, he focuses more on Jesus' teaching than, than the other Gospels. Okay, so Matthew is concerned with, with what Jesus taught. And there are five sermons, or sometimes we call them discourses, that are found within this book. So you're likely familiar with some of them, like the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse. You're familiar with Jesus' teaching. And most commentators agree that the book of Matthew is organized around these five sermons that we find here. Okay? So as you look at your outline, I want you to notice this, that there are 28 chapters, and the first two chapters serve as an introduction to Jesus with a series of birth narratives. And those first two chapters are laid out in, in chronological order. Then you get to the end of the book, which would be, I think, number seven in your, in your uh, outline there. Those are the last three chapters, and they are the climax of Jesus' ministry, and they're also in chronological order. So those serve as the intro and the conclusion of the book of, of, the book of, of Matthew. But then, in between those, there are a number of narratives... And there are a number of discourses found. As we said, there are five. But the narratives, or the stories that are found within that section, or those sections of, of chapter 3 and, and chapter, chapter 25, 
those narratives are not arranged chronologically, but they are arranged thematically. And they're arranged thematically, and then they seem to introduce the sermons or the discourses that Jesus gives. And then each one of the discourses or the sermons ends with this statement, when Jesus had finished. And then it goes on to another narrative section in, in the book. Okay, I'm a little behind on my PowerPoint, so let me see what we've missed so far. So Matthew focuses on Jesus' teaching. Uh, there are five lengthy discourses in the, in the book of Matthew. And uh, the first sections introduce, uh, introduce Jesus, and then the last section is the climax. So, um, so we won't go to what kind of book is it yet. So if you look at your outline there, uh, and you look at this uh, more closely, you have the introduction of, of Jesus as the king who will save his people from his sin, right? That was the message of the angel. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. Then you get into uh, the first discourse, which goes from chapter 3 really to chapter 8. And there are narratives that introduce that block. So the presentation of the king and announcement of his kingdom. And then it moves into the discourse of the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount there. Now, I won't go into each detail, but you can see how, how this sort of unfolds as you walk through this. So as you seek to read through the book of, uh, the book of Matthew this week, I want you to be able to follow this particular outline and, and understand what is, what is taking place. Now, lastly, what kind of book is Matthew? What is a gospel? Which quite literally and basically means that it is good news. It is good news about Jesus Christ, that he came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins and rose again and has ascended into heaven and will return again. And what we know about Jesus and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, we know from the four Gospels. Like there isn't some place else we go to find out information about Jesus. We find what we know about Jesus and in these four Gospels, which quite literally, they are the heart of what we believe as Christians. Okay, it's not, it's not movies, it's not other resources, it's, it's what we know about Jesus found right here in, in these Gospels. Now, it, by way of conclusion, let me have you turn over to Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. I just want to point out an interesting detail before we, before we close. To understand the precious nature of, of the Gospels and of Matthew in particular. Okay, so remember I, I said Luke gives a stated purpose, and it's found here in, in the first verses of Luke chapter 1. But this is a verse, I think, Luke 1 1, that sort of gets overlooked. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So that's Luke's purpose. But skip back to verse 1. He says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. 
That's an interesting verse, isn't it? That many have made an attempt to record and describe the details of Jesus' life and ministry. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't the only ones. There were others at the time writing about Jesus. But we only have four. We only have four that are inspired and preserved. And in that sense, these four Gospels ought to be regarded as precious to us. Because it's here where we learn about Jesus, what he did for us, and how precious he is to us. Let's pray together. Father, as we move into our study of this great book, uh, our desire is that we would come to know you better and love you more. We would ask that what was said this morning, what we studied, is is in some way helpful, that even if it's not immediately applicable and encouraging to us, may it stir within us a desire to know your word more so that we can be better followers of you and better evangelists for you as well. Bless our time and our study in this passage of this this book, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.